Once again, folks, live in Greenwood. Bonjour, shalom, what's up? And welcome back to How You Living. The only show recorded live from the Chaz Tower in the Million Dollar Studio, answering a single question. And I start with Chaz when I ask, how you living, man? You know what? Not doing bad, not doing bad. Uh, It's been a good four-day weekend. Had some good turkey um, and some adventures around the city for the past few days yeah yeah it's been uh the thanksgiving weekend of course we're at the tail end of that and uh people are setting up you know cold turkey sandwiches always a favorite a couple days after uh thanksgiving and uh yeah enjoying the life before we go back to the work week i guess indeed uh but uh yeah we got a, a little show here for you uh kind of the second one now post the election we can kind of see settling into uh how that's all going to shape up and we've got uh our first segment as always which is callbacks a look back at other episodes and other things we've talked about because basically everything that we talk about keeps happening and you have to keep revisiting it in a way of kind of keeping up with it. Yeah. So uh, what's something that uh, is on your mind from the things we've talked about in previous episodes, Chaz? Um, I guess we can talk about the wildfires a little bit because like the biggest one uh, seen to happen. I was going to talk about this in America as a mindfuck, but I feel like, well doesn't really belong there since we've talked about it before and this big one is kind of uh you know a big thing and i started doing a little bit of research on it to see like what can we actually do about these things because a friend of mine wanted me to look at how we in washington can prepare for it since we've been having those over on the eastern side of the state so right we're at uh just as high of risk as california was prior and you know currently yeah Mm -hmm. i see what you're saying yeah, so I learned that, like, in California, there have been 4,972 fires this year since the beginning of 2018. Wow. Um, and according to the National Academy of Sciences, from 1992 to 2012, 84% of those fires, well, 84% of fires that we call wildfires happen because of some sort of human involvement. It's not deliberate human involvement. It might be accidental, but something as simple as, like, the sparks from your tire when you're driving creating a spark. Right. Being a thing. Uh, right. One of the big things they said uh, that was causing it, I forget what the exact number was, but power lines seemed to be the highest risk. Um, because the combination of there being a high fire districts that people in California are moving to, uh-huh. uh, and you know, they need power, they need the luxuries. That's what they're used to. That's what they want to have. And doing those things is really a part of the bulk of what's leading to those fires. There's other things. So I was thinking since California is one of our states that has a, a full democratic state legislature, um, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to push back, you know, capitalism and urban sprawl. Right. But urban sprawl is one of the big reasons why uh, the intensity of these fires and the impact of these fires is so big. 
Uh, so if power lines is one of the things that we can do to hone away from that, you can uh, put the power lines underground. But no business is going to put them underground on their own volition. So if that's one of the core things that can help mitigate urban sprawl a little bit, uh, especially with the wildfires, maybe a state referendum or, you know, a new state bill needs to be put forth to mandate if you're going to build a, a residential area in this many feet or this many, you know, however distance in a fire safety zone, you must put all uh, power lines underground. Right, right. Yeah, and then, you know, people will say that these are small communities that are affected by, you know, regulation changes like that, <laughs> and the cost of their doing business as real estate in their area becomes more expensive because the power lane line thing. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting looking at the overall devastation of a fire that, you know, it's that or just, you know, reduce everything to ashes, which is mm-hmm. like what happened in in a few of those communities yeah the campfire the one that was like the biggest one that just happened that community is like gone basically yeah yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting i mean you're gonna see uh new forms of uh of kind of focus on material fire retardant which is kind of it's kind of a loss in a way because most of those companies are kind of the dow chemical side of things kind Mm -hmm. of making these products that um, have the ingredients to make them quote unquote fire safe. But we're definitely going to hear a push towards that after these fires of people that just want like fireproof homes somehow. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting. Uh, And, and, you know, looking at it from the perspective of, you know, how you maintain the land um and similar to what you're saying these sprawled areas those become kind of these jurisdiction of these developers or these developer communities you mm-hmm. know and uh and you know dealing with the brush and the things that are in between the forest lines and stuff and the idea of like thinning some of the trees that are like leading to the open areas where the houses are so that the intensity would go down and or you know it wouldn't burn the uh the stuff in between you'd 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 gather that yeah i think there's a technical term called for it called fire breaks and they say i was watching this one thing where they made a suggestion where you can put very large open fields in as fire breaks because there isn't as much to burn there so like baseball diamonds football fields soccer fields there's like and you can put them on the edge of the city encampments that way when the fire starts coming through that's one line of defense that they have yeah it's interesting I mean, it can ultimately jump huge distances if it gets if it gets big enough and it's popping those trees like those, oh yeah you know when those trees get those immediate just emulsification or whatever mm-hmm. it, like they explode and stuff that's yeah those that becomes an unstoppable uh, situation um, and yeah it's you know it's something we're going to continue to talk about it's just getting later in the year for this uh, fire season type thing and and this was one of the largest we've seen yeah and fire season now in california is 12 months there is no season it just that's basically the status quo right so so yeah so you got any callbacks mikko uh i mean that one was so focused i feel like uh other than just you know staying uh focused on what's going on with this government as we go through the transition here in about a month yeah and the new congress gets sworn in in january uh we can uh we can expect um you know certain movements and and uh 
we need to keep an eye on it and see what the court's doing and what the uh, Congress is doing while we go through this transitional period. Mm-hmm. So call back to civic engagement. Indeed. And with that, we're in episode 65, man. We Woo-hoo. qualify for uh, Social Security. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're going to get those new Medicare cards in the mail soon <laughs> for the How You Live in broadcast made it to 65. Um, and we're here again in North Seattle uh, bringing you the, the news and, and the focus of attention this week. Chaz, where do we want to start? Uh, so I kind of wanted to talk about since since I don't re- re- like we talk about Trump. Right. But I feel like we're in this one weird instance with the whole Jamal Kakoshi thing. I said his name horribly. I'm sorry. The, yeah. The writer for the Washington Post mm-hmm. who was basically abducted and killed and yeah the, uh, and how kind of it's a political quagmire like i don't i think if it was any other administration we definitely would have ratcheted down the amount of money we're giving them so like for a little context um like the u.s started giving to saudi arabia maybe about 10 years ago it was a very low amount then during the obama presidency it started to ramp up a bit uh during that time from 2013 to 2017 uh they've given them about Two hundred and forty-eight million dollars. Um, when it comes to uh, Saudi Arabia's major weapons import, the U.S. makes sixty-one percent of that. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely some ties direct from uh, from almost every administration. Mm-hmm. But here's the interesting thing: um, when Saudi Arabia was Saudi Arabia, like it makes sense from why we would do that from an allegiance standpoint because. When it comes to who creates sort of the zeitgeist in um, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia is one of those countries and Iran is the other. And we we that's why we have deals with both of them. Uh, but as soon as the Yemen conflict happened, that's when we ratcheted down our contributions. But as soon as Trump was elected, that went up higher than any contribution that we had given him before. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So, so I see the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but here, see, when you, if you say it like this and you want them to make the moral stance of, you know, Jamal Khashoggi uh, was an American, like he was in self-imposed exile from Saudi Arabia because he was a critic um, of uh, Saudi Arabia's um, aristocracy and and how basically like the monarchy just owns everything there and how they need fair elections and a fair government and everything like that so there is a a degree of uh, is he trying to swipe down his political enemies and is president trump trying to protect him cutting down his political enemies because of the economics and if you want to know the economics this was from the end of a video i saw on the bbc where trump said that Saudi Arabia has committed to purchasing a $460 billion worth of things. Right. So, and if you, if you're like thinking from his business standpoint, $248 million to make $460 billion sounds like a good return on investment. I guess you just have to sell your soul. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, we have to fulfill those contracts probably over the next five to 10 years. Oh yeah. And uh, we'll, you know, we'll find out what we deliver and when and what the situation is then. Um, Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a country that is definitely in control of its image at this point. And it has to decide what it wants that image to be. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's kind of the situation. Clearly, there's atrocities being happened, you know, and people are to blame and mm-hmm. it's heading right back to the crown now. So, yeah. And, and when it comes to the Yemen conflict, the the U.N. has said this is the greatest humanitarian uh, conflict in the last 100 years. So definitely there's I don't know. If, everything about it i know they've closed off borders i know they've bombed yemen and i know through their actions it has led to a lot of famine and a lot of starvation in there because you know their supplies are being cut off yeah yeah i mean syria is bad too still you know although i guess there's still some regular way of life happening at places in syria Mm. um yeah i mean that's that's war man that's that's where we're at i mean we're 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 simultaneously fighting conflicts now perpetually oh yeah the it's just interesting to see that other countries like denmark and germany and and other ones they they have uh, said no we're not giving money to them anymore because of the kaskoji thing and america of course isn't but of course we can see why and germany was a big one because denmark i think denmark finland and there's another like norwegian state that i can't remember that's a part of it. But Germany, Germany behind Spain and uh, France is the person who gave the fourth largest amount of arms to Saudi Arabia. So that'll make an impact. But they're still not as large as the United States. The United States just dwarfs it. So if we were going to make that moral stance, the United States would have to say, nah, we good. But, of course, we're not going to do that because we got a president who cares about money. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's and that's uh something we should keep, you know, watching and and uh and we'll see how that unfolds, you know. Mhm. Um like I said, yeah, these are usually long-term deals, so we'll 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 be there. Uh what else you got going on in the uh the world today, man? Um that was my big topic that I wanted to talk about kind of from the, you know, what what is our president's mentality and actions and how does that impact a certain part of the world and what we can do and what it represents as America. So, yeah. Cause like, I mean, if we looked back on it, what would Obama have done? You know, I mean, would he have cut the order in half? Would he have excluded the order completely? You know, um, if you look at the time that he was looking at where the economy was coming out of like a bottomed out period, you know, would he be able to risk that big of a contract at that moment? So, I, I mean, yeah, but there's also the thing that we have to consider is um, not only does uh, 45 think that it's us that, he's, that we're going to help out, but also himself because he does have a lot of business ties with Saudi Arabia. So there's kind of like a personal conflict of interest there where I can see because he has, you know, hotels there like there the monarchy is trying to build a bit of a middle class in Saudi Arabia or not. No, sorry, not a middle class an upper class. And uh, Trump is basically on the ground floor of that with his, with his different uh, business ventures going on there. So definitely when he says, Oh, I'm the president, I can scratch your back. Yeah, I know. That's why he's kind of taking a cavalier nonchalant attitude about the whole uh, Jamal thing. 
which, you know, a- again, one side is going to say, well, if it leads to economic prosperity, I kind of like his pragmatic realism, right? And another side will definitely say, uh, no, I think you shouldn't take a, a harder moral stance on this because America is the one with the most control here, and that moral leadership will say who else, what everyone else does. But in in defense of that, like, Canada hasn't gotten out of it. France hasn't gotten out of it and Spain hasn't gotten out of it. Right. So like, I mean, I, I agree with the, the sentiment that because we can do the most impact, we do need to be the forerunner. And if we want to say, Hey, you're not allowed to do this. And because it, it sort of sets a precedent where you're like, yeah, if you're going to be critical of me, I'm just going to do some shady shit and kill you. And the people who got our back the most are going to be like, yeah, no, we good with that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we do have a history of kind of allowing <clears throat> some degree of that kind of, you know, dictator rule style of uh, mm-hmm. to, of conduct to go on. So, I mean, we do kind of turn a blind eye at times. And I think I think it's partly due to the fact that we have this ongoing struggle consistency kind of thing going where, yeah, we uh, we're so uh, what do you, numb to the existence of all these you know situations and Mm -hmm. crimes and and killings and it's it's easy to sweep something as complicated as this one as simple as it seems on now that we know the facts Mm -hmm. but diplomatically complicated uh it's it's interesting that they're choosing to to do the blind eye technique you know but we we do that i mean that happens you know when when things like this happen at times um, it's just kind of a, a a political move by whoever's in power, and you know it it'll be big news for now. We'll see kind of where how it plays out, but something else will probably take its place in the headlines sooner than later. Oh yeah, and I'm not even thinking about the headlines. I'm just thinking about the long term impact. Uh, yeah, I mean the long term impact. Yeah, we'll see if we ever fulfill that contract. You know what we signed or what we agreed to, or yeah, but not even the contracts. I don't even give a fuck about that. I give a fuck more about what um, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia thinks he can do against his political enemies now. Well, I mean, he's always probably felt that he could do that anyway, and I think if the guy hadn't been an American to some degree, based on his his green card or right to stay here, um. Yeah, I basically think he probably wouldn't have made the headlines if this had happened. If he was just a writer for, like, Al Jazeera, for instance. Oh, yeah, he wouldn't have made headlines in America. Right. America would, well, I think in this administration, America wouldn't give him a rat's ass. But, like... It's the Washington Post connection. Yeah. It's the the time here, here. So... Uh, that's that's all I'm saying is it, it'll eventually be accepted because we have accepted this behavior from them before. So, um, yeah, it's bigger. It's bigger than Trump, even. Although, mm-hmm. is he the president that's the most obviously set to gain from it? More than likely, you know. I don't know. Some of those oil contracts the Bush got might have been kind of nice, but you know, I don't know all the details. The mm-hmm. Dick, Dick Cheney years, you know, I don't know. So. Well, we'll see, but yeah, no. Does it, it? It if the if Trump took a stand here, it would be 
almost precedent, like the unprecedented move. Oh yeah, no, and I guess yeah, I know it's one. Of, it's more like, hey, we know he's not going to do anything about it, and we just need to keep this critique in mind in 2020, um, because like, because I think like it's it's a critical social factor that's happening here, um, especially in an area that's run by so many unstable regimes. Right, right? it is definitely. I think. I use this as a stepping stone to talk about the bigger issue of, uh, yes, America is usually the one that sets the tone, like, in a moral sense of what people can do because they have so much economic control around the world. So in in cases like this, like, if it was the Clinton years and even, even the Bush years, it would have been like, yeah, no, this is morally reprehensible. Fuck you. We're not giving you shit anymore. Right. Right. So, and... And that way you get to impact a part of like the thing that builds his wealth. And then, you know, I would actually funny enough, the thing that I was watching with the wildfires, it says humans need to get their nose bloodied a few times before they change their behavior. And, you know, if you don't bloody his nose, he's not going to change his behavior. Better yet, if he doesn't think there's going to be a consequence for his behavior, he might escalate his behavior. And then with our current president, if, if he escalates his behavior, will it be repudiation? Maybe, right? Like, you never know. So that's that's where I'm thinking about, like, the long-term thing. Like, I don't care about economic contracts when it comes to this. Like, No, but I'm just saying that that's, in, that's their um, argument is that, is that the, the size of the – of the contract as part of the their their reasoning for why they're not going to say anything. Yeah, and I and, know that. And then at the same time, the Democrats kind of making less of a fevered attempt to make it swayed uh, is because they know ultimately the percentage that is going to be completed is probably not much, because there'll be other things that are going to happen down the line um, that are more serious. We'll, we'll end up not actually abiding by this whatever 800 billion dollars so in their minds they feel like you know they save they save a little face knowing oh he's not getting what he thinks you know but Mm -hmm. it's going to take five years to to deliver that but oh yeah well we got to take back the presidency for that one right there's that in the middle as well that's basically Mm -hmm. as a, a part of that so yeah i mean it's 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 a travesty uh a man is dead and uh clearly people knew and were there to to conduct themselves in that manner that it you know arrived at his death so whatever that means you know investigation wise and who knows who comes out of on the saudi arabia side you know that actually ends up getting tried and whatever but uh we'll see um it does i guess it has a little bit of impact in the sense that or more impact in in, in how other next presidents are going to have to address this issue because they're going to hear the flack. They're going to hear this other side. Mm-hmm. And so another president could, could face this exact same uh, conundrum and, and then how they would address it. So mm-hmm. it might change just in the sense of the non-response. It might be the final non-response. So, yeah. I, I do want to do a little bit more research on what Obama was actually able to do to, um lower the amount of arms they were given because when you see this chart in 2015 after the yemen war began it goes down slightly and then spikes up when trump is in office so whatever they were doing to bring it down and that's not to say they can't couldn't just halt it 
maybe because of contracts and everything. But yeah, I would like to see like what they actually did and what was that practical thing they were doing there, and could that be recreated by a different administration? It doesn't even have to be like a non democratic administration. Just any other Democrat who isn't Trump would likely right not commit to giving them more arms because of that. Yeah, exactly. Well, it it'll it'll you know we'll 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 see what actually happens. I mean, they do still get arms from other places, so they'll continue to get arms from those places. Yeah, and but sixty one percent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because we're willing to give it. So if, we, <laughs> if we're no longer willing to give them, then you know it's zero point one percent. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Well, um, my distraction topic yes, is. Sir. Uh, because we're in the, the, the very throngs of the ends of season for, for college football, Oh yeah. you know, so before I make the transition and start talking about America's favorite college basketball, I'm going to hold this into college football for a moment and talk about those after season bowl games. Oh yeah. Bowl season, you know, man, do you have any favorite bowls that you remember watching or no? I, well, I don't watch college football like at all (laughs) okay but i i think i need maybe like a history lesson or how bowl games work because i have heard like of like the tostitos bowl the fritos bowl the rose bowl like the rose bowl was always the biggest one in my head okay and i think the sugar bowl was like right under that but yeah i don't i don't know the like how do teams get to bowls? What are the impact of bowls outside of? I think it's the college equivalent to the Super Bowl, right? Like I'm like I don't know. It is. It is <laughs> to a degree. So um, you know, there's there's a lot of bowls. There's probably fifty bowls. Um, I have a uh, a list here. Um, you've named off some of them. Uh, typically, towards the end of the bowl season is where the uh, more impactful bowl games are played. Okay. So, um, all mostly officially happening on the first. You have uh, now what's called the Outback Bowl, the Citrus Bowl, which I think formerly was the Orange Bowl. Oh, I remember Orange Bowl. Uh, Fiesta Bowl. Yeah. And the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. And so, the way the playoffs work these days. A couple of those bowl games are the playoff teams, and then the winner of the uh, playoff semifinals play in what's then the college football championship. Oh, okay. Which is going to happen on January 7th this year. But earlier in the year, heading into the end of previous the previous year, starting on December 15th, we're going to have a bowl game a day. What? Throughout the Christmas season. And this year it starts with the New Mexico Bowl. Oh, my God. Which is going to be the Mountain West winner versus Conference USA. So those are just two conferences most people aren't, like, familiar with. You know, Mountain West, you're going to end up with, like, possibly Boise State, uh, more than likely. Um, You have Wyoming in the mix there. If if by boy Boise State gets a higher bull bid, mm-hmm. uh, and then Conference USA, I think it's an East Coast conference. Um, Interesting. I, I don't I don't know much about it. I think I feel like Madison is in that one. Maybe like uh, George Mason might be in that one. Uh, so so that's kind of the. And then you go through the rest of the bowls. You got the New Orleans bowl. You got a Boca Raton bowl. You got a Hawaii bowl. Guess where they play that? Hawaii. Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> you've got Independence Bowl, so so the Music City Bowl, which must be Nashville. 
uh, Arizona Bowl. I wonder if that's in Arizona. Uh, the Alamo Bowl in Texas. So bowl games are, uh, as you were saying earlier, you wanted to know uh, how they're decided. Uh, teams basically write a script to the bowl committee through their season. So by whatever win margins and who they played and like mm-hmm. the difficulty of the schedule as a whole uh, gets all factored in into this kind of calculation and people get awarded bowl games if you get at least six wins. Oh, okay. You got to to be bowl eligible. Because there's 12 games in a season or uh, 10? 10 I think there's 12 to 13. So, yeah, if you only have 6, it's you you're less bowl eligible than you used to be, but you're you're technically bowl eligible with 6 wins. And then uh and then certain bowl games have assigned uh conference winning teams that they usually play. So like oftentimes the uh Rose Bowl is the Pac-12 versus the Big 10. And so they uh they play in the Rose Bowl on the first, and so that's often that's been Washington, Washington State's played in it. Oregon was in it several times, so uh, that's a big game. That's and that's a famous one, and that is also the day of the Rose Festival in uh, California. They do the Rose Festival that day, so for oh the, okay, leading up to the Rose Bowl. So that's a whole thing. Uh, and then you have the Orange Bowl and the Cotton Bowl, which are played on December 29th. So those are the kind of premier games at the very end of uh, this year, 2018. Okay. Which is coming to a close, folks. So just enjoy the bowl games. Keep an eye out. Uh, they're they're fun to watch. They're some of the best teams in the country. Get a chance to shine in front of, you know, thousands of fans because these stadiums get full. No matter who's playing in them, people buy tickets. Nice. Just for the games. So uh, congratulations to those college winners. In my little segment, a tip of the hat to college bowl season. Yeah. And if you all wanted to know who was in conference in USA, according to Wikipedia, it's the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Florida Atlantic University, Florida International University, Louisiana Tech University, Marshall University, Middle Tennessee State University, University of North Carolina at Charlotte, University of North Texas, Old Dominion University, Rice University, University of Southern Mississippi, University of Texas at El Paso, University of Texas at San Antonio, and Western Kentucky University. Yeah, I think it's a mix of pretty solid solid schools yeah. and, and ones I'd never heard of. But oh, uh, I've heard of Old Dominion a little bit, Marshall, yeah. of course. And uh, look for those conferences and uh, and teams in my next sports-related segment when I do college basketball season because, folks, it heats up this time of the year as well. A little teaser. Gonzaga killing it again. Gonzaga killing it again. Yeah, go Bulldogs. So. All right, if we're going to go into the next segment, uh, I don't know if we've done this one officially, officially, but we call this one political action is lit because, you know, it's pretty lit. Political action is lit, y'all. But anyway, I do want to talk about last week. We talked about kind of the big federal races, but I do want to talk a little bit about the state legislatures 
because there are a few state legislatures now that have the trifecta both on uh, the Republican side and both on the Democratic side. So I think as we go along in these next two years or so, um, we can kind of see, I think we're going to see a little bit of dueling federalism. Uh, So let me see. When it comes to the Democrats, the Democrats also picked up a lot of state houses during this one because Mikkel always talks about them state races and their governorships. Like, yo, we didn't get Florida. No, we didn't get Georgia. It sucks. I know. But anyway, that's life. Hmm. <laughs> and but the Democrats have the trifecta of power in Washington, woo woo, Nevada, Oregon, Colorado, uh, California, New Mexico, Illinois, Delaware, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, and Connecticut. Jam, it's lit. Uh, but then the Republicans, they have it in Mississippi, Ohio, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, South and North Dakota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Kentucky, West Virginia, Arizona, Utah, Kansas City, Arkansas, Tennessee, North and South Carolina, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, and to my surprise, Pennsylvania. So, like, with those, and there's there's two places where I think there might be a little bit of uh, dueling of federalism that'll happen that we should look out for. So, New Mexico having a completely Democratic state legislature and their neighbor Arizona having a completely conservative legislature makes me wonder what they're going to do with immigration reform. Right. Because, uh, you know, they're both on the border. Uh, bordering Mexico, you know, that's what 45 ran on. And definitely, and especially in Arizona, where they feel like going way back, way back when we're talking about uh, Marianne Mendoza, I believe she, uh, her husband or her son, who was killed by that one illegal immigrant, uh, I think she was in the state of Arizona. So definitely seeing how, you know, things like that escalate and ratchet sort of the zeitgeist against um immigration right there you can definitely see the state legislature being a more conservative ramping that up a little bit more but in new mexico where you know there might be a little bit more compassion in a democratic state legislature you might see something where after going to make a huge uh immigration reform federally there would be some bits and pieces they could take from this state legislature and put it there if you know we take back the senate and uh, the presidency in 2020 yeah (laughs) it's it's lit (laughs) and then my other one is to think about um that there was medicare expansion in three states uh that's kind of going to my next segment but illinois and kind of ohio indiana they're both next to each other kind of starting that midwestern state thing and you know how some of the midwestern states that went for bernie went for 45 uh, during the main election and seeing that now that Illinois is blue and it has Chicago as a big place there, it'll be interesting to see what the state legislature does for, you know, the city of Chicago itself. Um, it's pretty good. At, it's pre- we'll, we'll have a pretty good chance of maintaining the Medicare expansion because the ACA has a Medicare expansion that was optional to opt in and Illinois opt in. Uh, and as does Indiana, but we know Indiana was Mike Pence's old stomping grounds. So definitely all the things they've been doing with abortion and just uh, gay rights and 
you would think like those things would probably end up continuing and you would hope that Illinois maybe being influenced by that a little bit would start putting forth bills and legislatures that go against those things. And then lastly, since we're in the state of Washington, we have a whole blue one, even though our blue, like we didn't get too many progressives in. So probably progressive ideas happening in Washington is slim to not a little bit, but now that we have, you know, democratic control, I do want to see maybe an end to regressive taxes. I know that's why a lot of wealthy people keep their money here, though, because they don't get state income tax. So that protects them from a little bit of stuff. Um, I would love it if because right now, because of 1930s laws, we have a hard time dealing with rising rents and, you know, the more metropolitan sparring, sprawling areas and I would love it if there was an addendum or, you know, a rewrite of a law that superseded those old laws. I wouldn't say for the entirety of the state, though. I think doing that for the entirety of the state is uh, a little ridiculous. But I think if you gave an exception to Seattle or an exception to King County to allow for some rental mitigation, um, I think that's what kind of Seattle needs with a combination of rezoning in order for it to become affordable. But we need, you know, a liaison to go into Olympia and say, hey, can we get this? Then I would say if someone's out there and you're going to run for city council because, you know, city council races for, you know, our specific zones are coming up next year, that might be a good thing to run on. Um, we could be trailblazers for a statewide Medicare for all. I think, um, our governor has talked about that to some degree, but don't know now is the time where they can actually pull the trigger on that, having the votes for that in both state houses. Right. Um, and he's eyeing a presidential race possibly in 2020. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I could. Funny enough, I'd probably, even though he's like old white dude, I'd probably dig him a little bit more. (laughs) 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 All right, yeah, yeah. but you know, he's he's coming from you know progressive influence because of Seattle and all that. Um, Let me see, yeah. So basically, that's the things I'm going to start tracking for political action is lit. But I just want to thank everybody who went out there and just you know did the boots on the ground work that it takes to. actually get people to come out because even though this year uh there was only about 50 percent of uh, the electoral uh eligible voters that came out and votes that was still like a nine point difference from 2014 and so that means there was boots on the there there was boots on the ground uh, y'all were knocking on doors you were changing hearts and minds and you know you got them out there like of course we had gerrymandering uh working against us so we just needed to get more people and other than like this one election in 1914 this was the biggest one since then so that is i i am glad y'all did this for this one um but definitely it's one of those things where like mikhail's pessimism last week was saying that usually it, it doesn't happen like that so like when it comes to 2022 get your asses out there again right don't bring it from 49 back to like you know 42 which is sometimes the average like that or 46 like nah nah yeah, and there's places where we need more uh, outreach, obviously, some of the rural areas. Even with mail-in voting, uh, it's it's just, like, a hassle. We almost need to, like, educate voters in different parts of our states. 
uh, equally as we do in the cities, and that might mm-hmm. help uh, kind of spread not only the awareness of upcoming votes, but like make people feel more comfortable with the issues that they're going to be seeing, and like mm-hmm. let them uh, like understand what they're voting on, even in the individual elections and the individual parts of the the ballot that have like measures and. And and feel maybe more comfortable. We have to drive a force where it's more comfortable for people to come to these like town hall meetings, come to these gatherings, mm-hmm. community gatherings, and and have some sway and opinions and kind of understand the dynamics, what's going on both in the cities with the rising rent costs in West Coast cities and in the rural areas with you know lack of jobs at times and income in general. We have to kind of find our advanced modern solutions for those problems we need to be addressing them in those community leadership houses we need to be addressing them in those state legislatures and then ultimately in the white house and the congress Mm -hmm. but we need to start having some of the ownership of the problem of america and and take it to our local houses and 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 start kind of building the fight there again yep and uh and and using the momentum and the wave, but at the same time, our listening capabilities and our abilities to try and like outreach the people that we can, the people that are on the fence or borderline or consider themselves apathetic to the idea of, of participation, uh, we just have to have them understand that that's all in the process. That's in the soup. And yeah, and Tip O'Neill said that all politics are local politics. Yeah. So that kind of saying like transitions me into like you know my random uh, Chaz's whatever random musings or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I don't know what I want to call this segment because it's kind of just like my free form to do what I want. Sometimes it's cool. Sometimes I'm like very measured. Sometimes I'm just like you know you should just watch that thing. You should call it your free form. I don't know just to do what I want <laughs> segment. <laughs> that works. Yeah, this is my free form do what I want segment. But I was thinking, you know, I'm your resident democratic socialist. You know, I'm all about that life right now. And now that we have, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the mix, but she was the only one who ran really as a democratic socialist um, explicitly that kind of got in there because democratic socialism or just the word socialism in and of itself has been sort of mired in the muck and mired by, you know, misinformation and uh, framing it in a way that makes it look bad or everything like that. So I thought to myself, does democratic socialism need rebranding? And I was like... Because I was, I forget what podcast I was listening to. I believe it was left, right, and center. And they were saying that, as I mentioned earlier, there was like, there's Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah who passed the Medicare expansions for the ACA. And they're noticing that Democratic reforms are popular in red states. But how do we make Democratic candidates as popular as those Democratic reforms in red states? And those Democratic reforms really aren't coming from like, well, they're coming from the moderates who understand if they want to give something to their constituency, but it's definitely the progressives are saying, hey, this is a step in the right direction when it comes to, like, these democratic reforms, um, because the conservatives don't want to give you, like, they wanted to tear down the ACA, and, you know, the ACA gives people uh, some peace of mind that they'll be able to get health care even when they're not working or if they're poor or everything like that. And kind of the flow back into the earlier segment when I was talking about Indiana. Um, no, no, it was Ohio. Ohio was one that rolled back that um, opt-in ACA thing 
and that made a half of their registered uh, medical patients lose their insurance. So, you know, these sort of things have an impact on people's lives in a very real way. So definitely it would benefit them as people if they got them in their state legislatures, but even benefit them even more if we could somehow do that nationally. So I was thinking like right now, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about like a Green New Deal. Um, it's with some other people, but I haven't dove into it as much. I do plan to dive on t- and dive into it for next episode. So listen to that. Um, uh, but I just want to spitball a little bit on maybe going off the idea of the new deal, but more for social programs. Uh, cause you know, we have job instability, uh, from right to work laws or at will work and everything like that. You don't in those places where they feel like that will give a, business owners more flexibility to grow their business and therefore you know offer more jobs it can be a little bit counterintuitive so creating a new deal that deals with that with you know some degree of guarantees sick days uh, maternity leave you know mandatory vacation days like that sort of thing that you know we know empirically works but we socially think it doesn't work because it doesn't deal with pull you up by your bootstraps and all that right and, uh, it, and it costs money and that's mm-hmm. Ultimately, the bottom line for older voter taxpayers is like, how much is this going to cost me? Yeah, that, that is very true. Um, when it comes to the economic instability, like I know we can we can complain about the millennial life and maybe like my millennial life from a macro sense is weird because I live in Seattle and Seattle's expensive as fuck. All right. But we did do like, you know, the fight for 15. But even for the fight for 15, you're still, you know, living with roommates. If you think that at a certain point in your life, you're supposed to be out of a roommate situation into your own place. And if that's the expectation, like we millennials don't get that unless, you know, we don't live in these these areas and we're supposed to. It's like suck it up, buttercup, but whatever. No. That's why I say we're going to do a social program, new deal, uh, renting the housing reform, you know, have more mandates from HUD to build more affordable housing, um, make sure that we can do something about definitely from a, a city standpoint, see where your zoning is and what that's doing, uh, making sure that you give a higher percentage of those new buildings that are going up to people who um, maybe, you know, not find financially unstable or you know on a fixed income or things like that i definitely think we need to raise the poverty line because i think the poverty line is way too low for the realities of america and we have to understand like what poverty actually is in america and it's not you know somebody sitting on their ass all day at home doing nothing no it's people working two three jobs just to keep afloat and it ain't definitely uh, looking at medical Medicare for all is definitely something I think that should be in there because the medical costs, if you talk to a lot of people outside of, you know, their rent, their car, their food, uh, their utilities, right, student loans, which I'm coming to next, uh, yeah, you have your medical costs. And if you don't have insurance to your job because, you know, they're doing the whole, I remember Ted Cruz made up some bullshit thing during um, – a debate he was having on cnn where he's saying like yeah we have the people who want to expand their business but as soon as someone has 30 30 hours i have to give them insurance so what do i do to game the system i give them 29 hours right and he's talking about the business owner but he's not talking about how that impacts the employee right like it should be a synergistic relationship the reason why you give them health care is so in case something happens to them 
they're able to take care of it and come back to work faster. I mean, it's the whole human part of it, human resources, right? And just looking at it from the business end, it's just looking at people purely as resources. I'm Captain Obvious. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that's just, like, weird. It's definitely the biggest one where I think because – because colleges and universities have had such a conflated price point, and not because they're offering better education, but because they're offering bigger facilities around their campus and stuff, you know. Like, hey, we have all this restaurant. Oh, look at this new gym facility we have, right? Look, look, look at these new dorms and stuff. And then it's inflating the price of school, uh, while some might argue that the value of school is going down. So kind of your returning investment can be, you know, negligible or negotiable at this point. And because of the high cost of that, student loan debt is one of the big things. And definitely, I think probably the most progressive thing you could probably talk about right now, especially with the whole Fannie Mae uh, thing that happened in 2008, student loan forgiveness, just like your student loans are no more. Just like do that. Yeah, nice. Yeah, right. Because then, because if you want to grow the economy, that's just think about how much their stu- a person's student loan is. Is it if it's a thousand dollars, right? That's that's a car note, right? You could get a car and still have like six hundred dollars left over, right? Right. If, if it's ten grand, if it's forty grand, if it's eighty grand, right? If you're a, a med student with a hundred and twenty grand, mm-hmm. right? You know, some of these places out here, especially like when you're looking trying to do outreach to. Uh, more red than purple states, definitely where medical facilities out there do not have a, a lot of people, a lot of doctors coming out there to work, but you know, you can incentivize them and that's how, that's how humans work. They need incentives. If you don't give them incentives, not going to do anything. So exactly. So yeah, other than that, yeah. And then uh, I think the uh, jobs, part of job instability is that, you know, a lot of things are becoming automated, uh, but also trying to make sure that folks have the training they need for that sort of thing. So what are, what are going to be the new trade jobs in this new economy, in this like postmodern economy, if you will, right? And uh, what will happen now? Because, you know, we're in our 30s. Uh, for us, like when we're in our sixties, able to retire, will the jobs we have right now still be something someone can do? Uh, right. right. It's like so. It's trying to understand like where the new possibilities for jobs are going to be, and make sure that we equip our schools, uh, not not just like our colleges, but like our high schools and even our middle schools, and possibly even our elementary schools with like. <laughs> the basis of saying like okay what is this new economy going to be like because if you do that in combination with just like there won't be enough unless you're creating bullshit jobs which i don't think bullshit jobs are good like they're just busy work and they're a way for you to say you look like you're doing something but you're not making an impact so why are you doing this um and we can have a combination of you know making sure that we teach people the things so they can do the jobs that have the most impact for everybody in our society. And maybe if there's where we mitigate that, where the workforce might not be as high, um, that's where we can do a combination of the job retraining and say UBI. But I think UBI is still a little bit away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and, and that's true. I mean, we definitely need to have the curriculum at least make sense for what the economy is giving you know, um, without curtailing to being, you know, 
just, you know, technical instruction for them. You know, to some degree, school is about them finding out who they are as a, as well as learning, you know. So it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's kind of a, a catch-22 to make it all based on, on curriculum directed straight towards, like, certain jobs. But Oh, oh no, I don't want it all to be like that. I just yeah. want it to be present. Right. Like, I mean, you're in school from 7 to 3. You have, like, eight classes a day. One of those classes is a computer class. One of those classes is a robotics class, right? Okay. But you still have your social studies. You still have your math. You still have your art, like especially art class. Like people need to flex the brain of creativity, and because that's usually the first thing to go when schools start running out of their budgets. They're like, yeah, no, we can't have the art program anymore. No, no, what's this art? Yeah, right? like so, so definitely that. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't want it to take cold. Like, people only start going to specialty schools once they hit um, high school. Or at least that's how it was in uh, Philadelphia. Like, you would go through your middle uh, go through middle school up until eighth grade, and then you could choose to just go to, you know, a, or your average high school that had different, different tracks in it. Um, and I did the business track, and yeah, like, one of my classes was a business class, but everything else was social studies, regular, all that stuff. <laughs> But and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, tonight it's, tonight it's nice. We've got a grown-up crowd, too, you know. Yeah, I did a show last week for a bunch of teenagers. And these kids carry on today. You can't tell boys from girls. I mean, the girls that wear slacks, fellas let their hair grow. I was talking to somebody, I said, look at that teenager. What's that, a boy or a girl? He said, that's a boy. That's my son. I said, sure, you knew you're his father. He said, I'm not his father. I'm his mother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was Roddy Dangerfield on The Tonight Show, like, 20. 20- 35 years ago probably oh wow yeah it's just funny because he's like just referencing like hairstyles it might even be 45 years ago in the 70s how Mm. people had longer hair but it's just interesting that joke now yeah in the same context yeah i don't don't think it would go over well with some folks and uh, i don't think they could tell it (laughs) <laughs> but uh that's the the climate we're in you know that joke made sense then and it was making them laugh because a lot of guys had long hair and mm-hmm. they hadn't gone through because the war and everyone had their haircuts by the military essentially mm-hmm. you know everyone kind of in the 50s and 60s had that idea they kind of had to break out of it in the late 60s so yeah um i was just trying to play a ronnie dangerfield clip just to kind of like juxtapose uh our our common values but then i didn't realize he was going to do a bit that also like falls in line with like what we talk about so it's kind of <laughs> funny i really just wanted like a corny uh rodney dangerfield bit but i had to pause it there because i didn't know where he was going to go after that so i just always try to bring us to a comedic close at the end of the show because of course this is a comedy show where we talk about very serious things because we got to make it somewhat lighter so that you can like muscle through it and realize that everything's going to be okay, but you got to do something about it. Uh, we have made it to the end of the show though. Chess. We have, and it felt solid. I mean, got my segments in. Yeah. Yeah. I feel good about life. Uh, as always, you can get a hold of the show at H Y L B O X at gmail.com. It's a free email service that we check periodically. Uh, also, uh, you can get a hold of me at the Twitter sphere at Sea Town Mayor. That's because I'm the guy helping out the municipality by the coast. Uh, I'm here as always on uh, how you live in, and I'm next to Chaz. 
Yeah, you can catch me at Chazbaz. I'm going to start updating that a little bit more, especially when I start doing more of my research sessions for the uh, the podcast and my listening sessions throughout the week to see what what's going on in the zeitgeist. Also, if you have any suggestions on good political podcasts for me to listen to, especially I want to hear more from like, you know, local people who are just like in their coffee shop talking with their friends saying this is how things affect me, you know, fly on the wall sort of things because the big national stuff is cool but you know what's going on in your area like al roker says um or right. in your neck of the woods I in your say. neck of the woods yeah so exactly that's what i want to know but always you catch me at chaz Baz on both twitter and instagram and yeah uh chaz has been solid uh enjoy the rest of your guys' turkey uh happy halla thanksgiving day and uh <laughs> moving forward into uh the christmas season that's right christmas hana kwanzaa y'all don't get too tired of uh all those tunes they play uh chess oh, oh yeah before we head out i want y'all to start um uh, two games i'll let you know if i lose the little drummer boy challenge if you hear the little drummer boy you lose um, in the Wham Challenge, if you hear Last Christmas, you lose. So, boom, the game starts now. Oh, dang. And game is afoot. Chaz, as always, it's been a pleasure. Peace. I'll see Good you next pleasure time. pleasure, too. We out. Peace. Yeah, saucing in the city. Don't get misinformed. Yeah, they gonna pull up on you. Yeah, we gonna do some